I had a friend in college. I had a friend in college whose dad was a pastor. And this is back in the 1980s. This is back before Willow Creek was famous. They were still small. There were no cool churches back then. Okay, it was the 1980s. Reagan was in office. We were afraid of communism. And this friend in college, his dad was a pastor of what at that time was a big church. It was a church of about 1,500 people. And it was a Baptist church, big Baptist church. And the thing about my friend's dad is that he was a name caller. And he did this frequently with his son, who was my friend, his wife, whom I, I don't think I ever met the whole time I was in college. But, you know, you're an idiot. Why are you such a, oh, you are a moron. I can't believe, you know, and just the stuff. So he was a name caller. He would just get frustrated and out would come the names. And my friend during college had, guess what, a crisis of faith, right? Because dad was a pastor and dad represented God. And, you know, dad just his whole life was saying these hurtful, harmful things to him, name calling. And it created a crisis of faith for my friend. Um, I have another friend who's actually a family member of mine. And it's somebody that I've looked up to my whole life. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I was like, I want to be like Mike. He's so awesome. And he is. And he entered the ministry. Um, he went to seminary. And I've told this first part of this story before. He, uh, when he was finishing up seminary, the church where he grew up, their pastor left. And they contacted my cousin and said, we want you to come home and be our pastor. Now, he probably should have said, I'm flattered, but no thank you, right? Those of us who are older, you know, can recall the Jesus thing, a prophet's never welcome in his hometown kind of a deal, right? So, but he went and he was thinking, this is going to be awesome. These are all the people who believed in me, who commissioned me for ministry, who sent me on to seminary, who every year sent support so that I could attend seminary. This is going to be awesome, the only problem with that is that there was a guy named Doc, and Doc was the chairman of the deacon board. That I'd tell you right there what kind of church it was. Okay, it's chairman of the deacon board, and Doc was accustomed to getting things his way. It was his way or the highway. And he figured out after about a year that he could not control my cousin. And so Doc arranged the deacon meeting and explained how they needed to basically fire my cousin and everyone else did what they always did in those meetings. Yes, sir, Doc. And he was outed as a pastor. Thankfully, he didn't leave the ministry. He got into another church where he had a great 15-year run and decided, you know what, I'm ready to... He was a staff pastor there, and he decided, I'm ready to be a senior pastor again. So he took a church and literally a couple of years into it, hired an associate pastor who came in and who started backstabbing him from day one. He didn't know it, but the new associate pastor came in and any complaint or whatnot, he did the Absalom thing. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, Absalom was one of the sons of David. People would come to the city gate with their problems and Absalom would be like, oh man, I would love to ha help you. My dad, he's such a, you know, such a difficult person, man. He's a horrible king, but you know, if I were king, this would work out. You know, you'd, I'd, I'd sure help you out. And he did that kind of Absalom thing and wouldn't you know, my poor cousin was fired again, right as he was about to send his oldest to college. I know, how awesome is that? <laughs> Double thumbs down, okay? I have a friend here in Lexington 
whose boss goes to one of the big churches in Lexington. If I told you the name, you'd be like, yeah, I know. Okay, so, and they make a big deal about the fact that they're a Christian. They got a fish on the back of their car. On their desk at work is what would Jesus do in this little cheesy wooden plaque thing, okay? This man is harsh. He's demeaning. He's overly critical. You can never do anything right. If you do three things right and one thing wrong, he will call you into his office and he will talk about the one thing for like 20 minutes straight. Forget the fact that you did three things and hit him out of the park. And so my friend, anytime she's called into his office, she cries later that day at home. And he's a Jesus follower, right? Do you, you see, are you catching the, you know, angst here? You have known people, haven't you, in home settings where mom or dad were, were a hypocrite and it left a bad taste in the mouth of the kids when it came to Christianity. You've known of churches that have run pastors out on a rail or pastors who've had a moral failure and it's left you kind of disappointed about church. And you've been in situations just out there, Cub Scouts, you know, band, uh, work, and somebody does the whole, I love Jesus, yes I do, and then they totally go Sith Lord on somebody. You know, Sith Lord is when the lightsaber is red, and then they, and another one comes out the bottom. It's the two. Then you know you're in trouble, and someone's going to get sliced in half, and it's probably you. Okay? Today, <laughs> you know, come on, you know some Sith Lords out there, don't you? And they do the Jesus chant, and you're like, I don't think your lightsaber should be red. Okay, faith, faith is not just a Sunday thing. Faith is an everyday thing. If you are a disciple of Jesus, for, so for, and, and in this room today, there are disciples in this room, and then there are people that are in this room, and they're still exploring and kicking the tires, and that's entirely okay. Remember last week, we talked about the fact that it's relational, and it's a process. But for those of you that have said, yes, Jesus, you are my king, yes, and you, you know, drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak, I want you to know that discipleship is a 24-7 thing. You never get a day off. You never get a day off. And if you are a disciple, it's going to impact every sphere of your life, every set of relationships of your life. And to kind of make the case for that, we're going to look at several passages from one book, the book of Ephesians. So you got a little kind of introductory thing. Ephesians is a circular letter of the Apostle Paul written to several different churches. One commentator said this, the book of Ephesians is one of the finest descriptions of the Christian life in the entire New Testament. Or put another way, the book of Ephesians is one of the finest descriptions of what it means to be a disciple in the entire New Testament. And Paul in this letter touches on all the various kinds of spheres and relationships and how your relationship with Jesus Christ becomes like a zombie uh, virus that then affects your home life, it affects your work life, it affects what's going on at school. I mean, it just infects everything. It's like a zombie virus. You can tweet that. It's okay. In church today, my pastor said that Jesus is like a zombie virus. Um, so let's just, let's get into some of the verses here in the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 2 
And I think I'm going to start off with verse 1, if I can find it in my Bible, which I didn't mark it. No, no, no. Okay, here we go. Look, it's even on the big screen. Once, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to be, obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. And I, we were just here in this particular part of Ephesians just a few weeks ago, remember? Some of you are like, really? As I start talking, you'll be like, oh yeah, light bulb. Okay, so Paul is saying right in this passage, just the first four words, once you were dead. So the condition of every human being before God when they are born is to be basically spiritually dead. There's nothing they can bring. Have you ever been around a corpse? Has any, I mean, I've been around a corpse, sadly. It's really, it wigs me out. That's why I'm not a doctor. So, okay? Um, corpses are creepy, okay? It's my own personal opinion. But I know it's like natural and all that stuff. But okay, so corpses don't do anything. They don't, if they do that thing, then it's the zombie apocalypse. Corpses, so when you go to the funeral, when you're at a funeral and they're in the box, what do you expect of the person in the box? Nothing. There's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can bring to the funeral. They're dead. And so this is an analogy Paul's using, and he's basically saying when it comes to God, when it comes to your relationship with God, trying to be right with God, trying to please God, anything along those lines, you're dead. You, you can't really do anything. And so, but it doesn't end there, all right? There's good news. So pick it up in verse 4 and following. But God... And there's a big but. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us, whoa, who are united with Christ Jesus, okay? But God, God loved us so much that even though we were dead, even though we brought nothing to the table, he gave us a gift. Some of you memorized this as a kid. For God so loved the world that he gave what? His only begotten son. God gave us the gift of his son, and Jesus freely gave of himself and died the death that we deserve so that we could live with God forever. And so God, even though we have nothing to bring to the table, God, through the gift of his son, can bring dead people back to life. Now, living people can bring something to the table, but it's, it's only something God does. All right? Verses 8 and following. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So many of our fellow Americans need to hear this. Come on. They really think it's this sliding scale. I hope I'm good enough. It's right here in black and white in the Bible. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Salvation is not church attendance, it's not giving, it's not prayer. Salvation is a gift that's received by faith. 
That's what the Bible teaches, okay? And so our relationship with Jesus is rooted in that fact. I don't bring anything to the table. God's done everything. God is so awesome. And now that starts to affect other things. See, I'm married to Jenny, but I am a sinner who needs a Savior. I am a sinner who messes up, who needs a Savior. I was a dead man who brought nothing to the table, but God made me alive. And in that knowledge, in that grace, I can walk out my marriage relationship with humility, and I can love her. Now, Jenny will tell you my love is inconsistent because I'm still being perfected, right? I'm still being perfected by the Holy Spirit and by God's work in me. But she would also tell you that over a 20-year run, I'm not as bad as I used to be. <laughs> I'm not as bad as I used to be, okay? That's grace at work in me. Trust me, okay? Remember what we talked about last year? Okay, so last year, last week. Did I mention I was at a wedding last night? Okay, so I even brought, I brought pictures. I brought pictures, okay? So what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who's made a decision that Jesus leads, they follow. And if you've made that decision, it's going to affect how you conduct yourself at work. There are all kinds of things in this Bible about how I should treat my wife, how I should interact with my children. I just talked about this other. So a disciple is also someone who I brought, I drew a picture of a heart. You like my artwork today? It's, it's very first grade of me, isn't it? There's a future for me in art. Okay, heart, I've, I'm being changed. I'm being transformed. I am not the same man that I was 20 years ago in so many different ways. Um, just last night at the wedding, we were, uh, we were talking about what it means to be an introvert and an extrovert. And everyone at my table was floored that I was an introvert. And they're like, but you are so good with people and you love people. And I said, yes, but I'm charged by being alone. This is draining the life out of me. <laughs> but I like you anyway. <laughs> okay? That's, that's God in me. Part of, you know what part of that is in me? The, the introvertedness? There was a part of me early on in life that I was just like, people. But now I look at everybody as somebody that Jesus died for. The Jesus thing in me is changing how I see things. And so everyone I see, I'm like, Jesus died for this person. Jesus loves this person so much. I need to get in tune with what God's doing there. So, and then the last thing, a disciple is someone who at some level is committed to the mission of Jesus, which is to make other followers of Jesus. All right? So let's see where Paul goes. And here I undid my book. Uh, where were we? Ephesians. Ephesians. So now let's skip ahead to chapter 4. All right? So I... If this is a clear description of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 2 he's talked about this relationship with Christ that's rooted in what God has done for us. We don't bring anything to the table. Now he's going to pivot and he's going to talk about how that changes your relationship with other people who have also been made alive by Jesus, the church. And that's chapter 4. Therefore... I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you've been called by God. Look at what he says. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. If the church in America just did that right there, that one sentence, do you think we'd see like a revival all across the United States? Booyah! Yes! Okay, but he goes on. 
Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there is one body, one Spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. So he shifts from this relationship with God and he talks about relationships within the church. And it's very clear what he's saying here, isn't it? If I could draw one thing that would revolutionize relationships within the context of the church, it would be a simple thing of deal direct. Here's what I mean by that. So often in the church, um, when I was younger, they would, the church people, church leaders would make a decision and, it, and they would forget the ministry that I was in. And I'd be like, oh, you stink, church leaders. How could you forget us in junior highland and da-da-da-da-da? And so I'd get grumpy at the person or the pastor that planned X and forgot about the junior hires. But what I could do and what I should do is instead of being grumpy, go to that person and go, hey, you forgot us in Junior Highland. And the way it works in the church is that person, because they're walking in humility, they go, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. You're right. I did. I forgot that. Will you forgive me? And then the relationship's made right. So many things in church land would be cut off if we just dealt direct with one another in that one issue. And I'll brag on this church family. In this room, the lion's share of people in this room, when they've been confronted with, you know, hey, ouch, you stepped on my toe. Their reaction is not, well, you should have been walking, you know, watching where you were going. They don't, you know, people in this congregation are like, you are so right. I just stepped on your toe. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That make allowance for each other's fault. I mean, it's boom. Okay. So then Paul goes on in the next chapter. So if we could go to chapter five, he talks about relationships within the context of home. And he says this, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ Love the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. Are you getting the key word here? No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two become one. This is a great mystery, but it's an il illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So I say again, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. This is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise. If you honor them, if you honor them, you will have a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So, there's this relationship with Jesus. We don't bring anything to the table. We're spiritually dead, and he makes us alive through what he's done in us. And it affects our relationship with other believers. We make allowance for each other's faults. We're gentle and humble. And then in our home context... Instead of being a lord and, and fighting for your own rights and all that, and hey, you know, that kind of stuff, it's the key word there, love, love. Hey, husbands, love your wives as you love your own body, love, you know. How do you love them? Oh, how did Christ love the church? He died for the church. 
gave up his rights and privileges as the very son of God for the church. Okay, so all, we see in Paul's thinking how this relationship with Jesus now is infecting all these other relationships. And if, and if I could have one thing within the context of home that would revolutionize, it would be parents with your kids when they get old enough, when they're junior high, senior high age, and they're old enough to understand these things, admit your weaknesses and faults. Because they know them anyway. Think of what my friend in college who's dad, you're an idiot. What if that man, when my friend was in junior high and high school, said, look, here's the deal. I, I'm working on this, or I stink at this, but I'm, I'm saying these things, and son, I don't mean them. And I'm a sinner who desperately needs God. And I get pressured, and I'm frustrated, and, and, and here's why. I, this is how my dad treated me, da-da-da-da-da. Um, you know, but I want, even in the context of not hitting the ball perfectly, the son would have had the advantage to know, ah, okay, my dad is a sinner who needs a savior and understands that. Okay? So acknowledge sin and struggle, especially the kind that impacts your family life. And the last, last thing here I'll take from chapter 6, verse uh, 7, I believe. And we've got the verse right up there. Work, work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than people. Um, he's talking about the, the context of slaves and masters. But there's a general principle in all things, whether you're running a band program or you're cheering at a game on a Saturday night or you're working for IBM. In a sense, you don't really work for IBM or you're not really cheering for East or West. You're working and doing what you do as though you're doing it for Jesus. And when that's the thing, it kind of changes. And if I could suggest one thing for the world at large, especially business, it would be like golden rule, baby, right? Treat others the way you would want to be treated. I mean, you know my friend who's got the boss that's got the little what would Jesus do? If that man would just do that, <laughs> if he would just, or if he would simply treat his employees the way he would, if the roles were reversed, I mean, imagine what would happen in Wall Street if all the people on Wall Street all of a sudden were, were, were working not for their own personal gain or the gain of a few key people, but for the average investor. I mean, see what I'm saying? This has a, tr this has a trickle effect. So there's, there's, if I could get something in your head and your heart today, it's this. Being a disciple is a 24-7 thing. It's not perfection. You're not going to bat a thousand every day. Sorry, none of us are perfect. But, but it will change how you relate in your home, and it should. It will change how you relate here in this context with your church family, and it should. It will change how you walk and roll things out in your work, in your business and professional relationships as a student, because it changes everything. So let me ask a few questions. Questions number one. Um, is there anyone in my life right now, is there any conflict there with someone that I need to resolve? Is there any conflict that I need to resolve? Do I need to serve somewhere more faithfully? Is there somewhere within the context of the church or food pantry or whatever it is where 
I need to be serving more faithfully? Do I need to love more at home? Do I need to acknowledge any weaknesses or sins when it comes to my own kids? Do I need to work harder at my job? Like when I'm on the clock, do I need to kind of work as unto the Lord instead of like, you know, I'm on Facebook half the time, right? <laughs> and if you're the boss, do I need to change how I treat the people who report to me? Because they look at me and they know I'm doing the Jesus cheer. Imagine, okay, for a minute, what the church would be like if we started, if, if discipleship was a 24-7 thing. Whoa! It would change things. Imagine what would happen in homes all across America if parents, if discipleship was a 24-7 thing, not just a Sunday thing. See, the, one of the biggest problems, I think, in America today is that we Americans treat um, our Christianity as this thing that we come and visit on Sundays, right? And it's causing all kinds of problems in our culture because there's all these people that don't understand real Christianity. They think they understand it because of what they've experienced it, but they haven't experienced anything that's really substantial or Jesus-led or Jesus-driven. And, and so if we were to make discipleship a 24-7 thing, it would revolutionize this country, and it would revolutionize. I mean, imagine... As a parent, if you gave your kids a front row seat to what it means to be a redeemed sinner, a front row seat to God's grace working in your own life, it would impact them. It would change them, okay? So as we kind of pivot and turn, you know, if I covered what a disciple is, today's really simple. I have bad news for you. If you're a Jesus follower, no, you don't get a day off. But Jesus will help you. He's given you the gift of the Holy Spirit at work in you. And you know what? When you mess up, when you don't hit the ball and you know you've messed up, you can repent and you can start again. Because it's not based on performance. It's based on what Jesus did on our behalf. Right? So I hope and pray you'll make it a 24-7 thing.